0: 1 Samuel chapter 7, if you don't have a Bible, there should be one in the pew in front of you. If not, we have um, sermon uh, scripture journals, ESV scripture journals that are on the Narthex uh, center table. If you'd like one of those, you can take that home. A good way to study the word and take sermon notes as well. 1 Samuel chapter 7, as we continue through this history of Israel, God's faithfulness, judgment upon Israel and Israel's enemies. We'll be reading the whole chapter. I'll be beginning in verse 2 of chapter 7. So if you would please stand for the reading of God's Word. This is out of respect for the speaker who is God. I'm just merely the reader. This is God's Word. From the day that the ark was lodged at Kiriath-Jerim, a long time passed, some twenty years, and all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. And Samuel said to all the house of Israel, if you are returning to the Lord with all your heart, then put away the foreign gods and the ashtroth from among you and direct your heart to the Lord and serve him only, and he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. So the people of Israel put away the Baals and the Ashtroth, and they served the Lord only. And then Samuel said, Gather all Israel at Mizpah, and I will pray to the Lord for you. So they gathered at Mizpah, and drew water and poured it out before the Lord and fasted on that day and said there, We have sinned against the Lord. And Samuel judged the people of Israel at Mizpah. And now when the Philistines heard that the people of Israel had gathered at Mizpah, the lords of the Philistines went up against Israel. And when the people of Israel heard of it, they were afraid of the Philistines. And the people of Israel said to Samuel, Do not cease to cry out to the Lord our God for us, that he may save us from the hand of the Philistines. So Samuel took a nursing lamb and offered it as a whole burnt offering to the Lord. And Samuel cried out to the Lord for Israel, and the Lord answered him. As Samuel was offering up the burnt offering, the Philistines drew near to attack Israel. But the Lord thundered with a mighty sound at the, that day against the Philistines and threw them into confusion, and they were defeated before Israel. And the men of Israel went out from Mizpah and pursued the Philistines and struck them as far below beth Then Samuel took a stone and set it up between Mizpah and Shin and called its name Ebenezer. For he said, Till now the Lord has helped us. So the Philistines were subdued and did not again enter the territory of Israel. And the hand of the Lord was against the Philistines all the days of Samuel. The cities that the Philistines had taken from Israel were restored to Israel, from Ekron to Gath, and Israel delivered their territory from the hand of the Philistines. There was peace also between Israel and the Amorites. Samuel judged Israel all the days of his life, and he went on a circuit year by year to Bethel, Gilgal, and Mizpah. And he judged Israel all, in all these places. And then he would return to Ramah, for his home was there. And there also he judged Israel, and he built there an altar to the Lord. This is God's word. You may be seated. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we may the words of my mouth meditations of our hearts together be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Robert Robinson, born in 1735 and died in 1790. He was 16 years old and running with the wrong crowd in London when he went by chance to hear the celebrated thirty-seven-year-old evangelist, famous evangelist, George Whitfield preach in London on May twenty-fourth, seventeen fifty-two. And three and a half years later, in December 1755, Robinson became a Christian. And in writing in his in his own journals, he said he found full and free forgiveness through the precious blood of Jesus Christ. And he soon began preaching for Methodist and Baptist churches in the area around Norwich and Cambridge. And in May 1758, when he was only 22 years old, he, he penned this hymn, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing, for his sermon on Pentecost Sunday. He wrote a hymn for his sermon, for, yeah, for preaching. I've never done that. In the following year of 1759, the lyrics of this powerful hymn were included in a small hymnal entitled A Collection of Hymns Used by the Church of Christ in Angel Alley, Bishopgate. And so we've seen this hymn quite a bit here at Hope, but I don't think we've ever explained the verses, and especially the part about an Ebenezer, which is in our text this morning. But a couple of the first uh, lyrics of the song goes like this, Come thou fount of every blessing, Tune my heart to sing thy grace, Streams of mercy never ceasing, Call for songs of loudest praise. Teach me some melodious sonnet, sung by flaming tongues above. Praise the mount, I'm fixed upon it, mount of thy redeeming love. And then we get to this verse. Here I raise my Ebenezer, here by thy great help I've come, and I hope by thy good pleasure safely to arrive at home. How many of you all singing that song have always known what Ebenezer meant? Right? Everybody, right? (laughs) Probably nobody knows, knew what that meant. Um, I grew up singing the song, never really knew what it meant. But it's from our passage, right? If we go back to that verse in verse 12, Samuel sets up a stone, calling it Ebenezer. And it literally means stone of help. That God has been our help, he says, up until this point, God has helped us. And so Robert Robinson, writing in this hymn, Here I raise my Ebenezer... This very, I mean, this very song, this hymn he's writing, is his Ebenezer. Right? This, this, this stone of help that points him to the goodness and grace of God. And as we jump into chapter 7, the more you study this chapter, the more you see the connections from it back to chapter 4. But that's what the author is trying to get us to do, is contrast what's happened in chapter 4, what's now happening in chapter 7. If you'll recall, in chapter 4, It described the fall of Israel to the Philistines. And when they fell and they lost in in battle, what did they do with the ark? They misused it and they brought it out thinking the ark would save them from the Philistines. It became superstitious. And one thing we discover in chapter 7, what we didn't know before, it hadn't been revealed to us, is that behind the scenes, Israel had been worshipping idols the whole time. They'd been worshipping the Baals and the ashroth. So it's not surprising, as they're worshiping idols, they're also using the Ark of the Covenant as an idol to worship. It's not surprising. So we've learned that now in chapter 7. And so Samuel, in verse 3 of chapter 7, challenges them to remove their idols, the Baals and the ashroth. These were Canaanite gods of fertility, fertility gods. And so Israel is really asking, if if you recall what just happened in chapter six, the ark was returned from uh, Philistia because the Lord's hand of judgment was upon them, and they were getting tumors, and this plague was spreading across every city that had the ark, they would receive this plague of tumors. And so they ended up sending it uh, out out of Philistia and back to Israel. And so now they have the ark again. But what God is trying to get them to ask is, how do you live in the midst of God's glory? How do you live with this, this God, this holy God? How will they live in the midst of God's glory again? And so the point of this passage this morning is that we need God's power to live in his glory. And we see that in three ways. The three points this morning is the power of new hearts, the power of prayer, and the power of remembering. The first of those powers is something only God can do. And the second is, Two are what we participate in, prayer and remembering. So we need God's power to live in his glory. We need his his working in our hearts. So that's the first idea, that we need the power of new hearts if we're going to live in his glory as his people. Look at verse 2 of chapter 7. From the day that the ark was lodged at Kiriath-Jerim, this is in Israel, a long time passed, some 20 years, and all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. That word, lament, gives us some insight into their heart that they, they were sad right, over their actions. They'd seen their sin. They understood that they were wrong. And so the power of God, of, to obey God, the power for any of us to obey God, comes from a soft heart humbled and powerless on its own. This was a work of God in their heart to, for them to lament and to know their sin, to know that they were wrong. What we see from chapters 4 and 7 is that Israel's defeat is solely due to their inability to worship the Lord alone and not due to any military advantages the Philistines had over them. It's true that the Philistines had a better army. But that wasn't the reason they lost these battles. It's because they stopped worshiping the Lord alone. And so they needed to first go from pride to humility. If you recall, a few of, uh, 70 of the Israelites were killed by God because they looked into the ark. So they weren't treating him as holy. So he humbled them. So we go from pride to humility. But we also have to go from rebellion to repentance. And before we can repent, change our ways, we have to be remade. We have to be remade. If, if you recall David's words from Psalm 51, he says, Hide your face from my sins. This is after his sin with Bathsheba. Hide your face from my sins, he says, and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence. You see what David is asking for is, is a new heart. He knows he cannot obey unless God works in his heart first. When we struggle with obedience, that should be our prayer, that God, you would give us a clean heart, renew our heart. Allow me to obey. Help me to obey. And so what is repentance? If you were a kid here from VBS, in the the summertime we talked about repentance, and we had a sign. Remember what that sign was? The U-turn. We have to do a U-turn. We have to go the other direction. Obedience to God always requires turning from our sin, turning away from our idols, putting things out of our lives that are holding us back. And so we need to ask ourselves, are we, as God's church, as his people, are we putting our idols away and worshiping God alone? That He demands complete loyalty. So the issue is, isn't that they were uh, worshiping God and, um, or that they were even worshiping other gods. The issue is that they were trying to have it both ways. They were trying to worship God and these other gods. And God demands complete loyalty, complete obedience to Him alone. You know, this this becomes, interestingly enough for us, most evident in the Christmas season, doesn't it? I, we uh, took as our family our, our older two kids to the Charlie Brown uh, Uh, play at the Little Theater, and they do a great job there. I love the plays. It's it's fun. And I always forget kind of what the main point of the Charlie Brown story is. And throughout the play, Charlie Brown is complaining. His big gripe with the culture right, is the commercialism, he keeps saying. The commercialism, it's taking over. People are missing the true point of Christmas. As Snoopy is is over there uh, putting lights on his doghouse, trying to win a contest. It bemoans the commercialism. And so what's interesting in that story, it, it, it kind of comes to a head at the very end where they're like, what is the main point of Christmas? What is it? And it's one of the few stories that instead of saying family is the most important thing about Christmas, it actually, they just read scripture from Luke 2, that it's about Jesus. And so Charlie Brown gets it right. Even though it doesn't preach, it reads God's word. It's pretty amazing for something so popular in our culture, right? Now, I'm going to go in a little bit of a rant. I'm sorry. I try not to rant. I don't, I don't think the pulpit is for ranting, but for sometimes there's for good exhortation uh, from the pulpit. And you know, this Christmas is actually on Sunday this year. I don't know if you've looked ahead in the calendar. And I was amazed, uh, looking at other churches in the area, that many churches aren't having worship on Sunday. Isn't that interesting? This Christmas, many churches are not obeying what Jesus commands us to do, and that's, that's to have worship every Sunday, to worship him, because he rose from the dead. And so this Christmas, God's command to worship him in, in the public gathering of God's people will come into direct conflict with the Christian idols. Notice I said Christian. The Christian idols of family and comfort. See, many times we elevate our families over what God calls us to do. And so many of us on Sunday morning are going to be enjoying our new Christmas PJs and uh, opening our gifts and having our breakfast. But I want us to, well, I want you guys especially to know we have service at 11 a.m. on Sunday that day. And what better way to celebrate Christmas with God's people and worshiping and hearing His Word preached? and taking the Lord's Supper together. And that's, that's what God commands us to do. And so what a better way as well to evangelize, really tell, tell the world around us what is most important. Right? Not our comfort, not even our family, and those who want us to stay at home, but the church and his bride. End of rant. So that's the first thing is repentance. That's what, that's what we see happening in Israel. That, that we, are, we need God to give us new hearts. And that new heart should, should bring about repentance. And then that should bring about confession. Look at verse 6. So they gathered at Mizpah and drew water and poured it out before the Lord and fasted on that day and said there, We have sinned against the Lord. And Samuel judged the people of Israel at Mizpah. They have confession of sin. And confession reveals who you really are, does it not? Can you name your sins? Can you name your sins or do you soften them? And think about what are the most common ways that we try to soften our sins? Often it's, it's we, we talk around it. We use euphemisms. We make them respectable sins. We include a silent confession here at church every Sunday because we want to give everyone a moment, myself included, to come before the Lord and acknowledge and confess what He already knows. And He wants us to say it. He wants us to name it. He wants us to really see with clear eyes who we truly are and what He's done to save us. So we, we work that in every Sunday, silent confession. But we also have, uh, what's also important is you need someone in your life who you can talk to, who you can admit, who you can be truly frank with. And, and that could be a spouse or that could be a friend, an accountability partner. Who, who can you confess your sins to? And so we see confession of sin and then we also see that they take a step Of faith. Look at verses eight and nine. And the people of Israel said to Samuel, Do not cease to cry out to the Lord our God for us, that he may save us from the hand of the Philistines. So Samuel took a nursing lamb, and he offered it as a whole burnt offering to the Lord, and Samuel cried out to the Lord of Israel, and the Lord answered him. Do you see how Samuel is becoming a type of mediator for God's people? They're saying, cry out to the Lord for us, Samuel. We're putting our faith in you to then cry out for God's help. Samuel's becoming a type of a mediator, a, a type of Christ for them. And they are willing, through his work, to put their faith in God. Cry out. They know that their only hope is in God's grace. So what's encouraging, as we've seen Israel, Israel take some bad steps through chapter five, 4 and 5 and 6, we're seeing them come back to reason, that reason is returning to Israel. And in a real sense, obedience to God is living in our right minds, and sin is living like we're crazy. Right? Obedience is like living in your right mind. It's the most rational thing to do. That, that, that God exists, which He does, and He tells us to live according to His Word and to come back to Him. That is the most reasonable thing in the world. But, we can only get there by grace because of our condition, because of our sin. This past morning at 3 a.m., I had a sermon illustration just come right to me. 3 in the, three in the morning. Uh, and it wasn't. Be- I didn't have a vision. I wasn't sleeping, but I, I was up with uh, our uh, two-year-old boy, who for some reason decided that was the night that he was going to learn to get out of his crib. He'd figured it out, right? He'd finally did it. We've had no other kids do that except him. He's learned how to get out of his crib. We could even watch him on the video monitor, like put his head over, swing his legs over, and even one time he fell right on his face. You know, the main thing is we, I did not want him to get hurt, which he did get hurt a few times. And I went up there, and, um, you know, we, we practice a form of corporal punishment. Um, you know, they, you know, kids have a soft bottom for a reason. And um, I, we went up there. I went up there four or five times, and I was getting more and more upset at him, angry, because I didn't want him to get hurt, ultimately. And he was disobeying me. But once he'd figured out he could break that rule... I would shut the door. Two seconds later, I could hear him going over that railing again and again and again and again. And I knew to the point of, I was just getting sad that this was not going to work. I needed to give him grace. <laughs> the law was not working. The law was not working. So what I did, I took his, I got him out. Uh, I took his crib mattress out and I went to the playroom and I slept in a different bed in the playroom and he was on the floor. And once he got on that mattress and knew that's where we were going to be for the rest of the night. He conked out immediately, fell asleep. You see, the law is instrumental to prepare us. We need the law before we get the gospel. We need to hear how we've broken it. The law is instrumental to prepare us, but powerless to change us, right? You cannot be changed. You cannot be saved by trying to keep the law. None of us can but we need God's grace. Only, the, only God's grace can change us. Grace in the gospel can do what the law can't. The law is good, but it's powerless to change us. And so through grace and through the gospel of what he has done, how, how Jesus has been obedient for us, he provides and produces what he commands. I love Paul Tripp's book on parenting. And one of the lines he keeps repeating is that parenting is impossible. It's impossible. You can't produce exactly what you want out of your child. Only God can. So what you need to do is get on your knees and pray that the Lord will change your kid's heart so that they would, most importantly, know their sin and know their Savior. Parenting is impossible without grace. So that's, that's the first idea, that we need the power of a new heart. The second idea in our text is that we need the power of Prayer. We need the power of prayer. Look back at verse 2 and chapter 7. From the day that the ark was lodged at Kiriath-Jerim, a long time passed, some 20 years, and all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. That's the first prayer that they have in verse 2. Lamentation. Did you know lamentation, being sorry and sorrowful, crying out to the Lord in your distress, is an important part of a vibrant prayer life. If you want a vibrant prayer life as a believer, you need to lament. Do you lament in your prayers? Do you cry out in your grief to God? Or do you only pray when you feel like it? Our our life is going well. Prayer is, is crucial during times of despair. We have to pray. Lamentations 120, you hear this. Look, O Lord, for I am in distress. My stomach churns. My heart is wrung within me because I've been very rebellious. Have you ever had prayers like that where your stomach is churning and that is your prayer? Lord, help me. I'm, di- I'm in distress. Or how about our Lord in the garden when he, said, when he withdrew from them, it from Luke 22, and about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed saying, Father, if you're willing, remove this cup from me as he thought about the cross. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. But hear this in verse 44. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. Being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. The more his agony increased, the more he prayed. Is that you? Is that me? Do we do that like like Jesus? Dale Ralph Davis in his commentary says, Desperation is never in trouble when it rests on omnipotence. Our desperation, when you come to the Lord in despair, it's never in trouble when it's resting on His omnipotence, His all-powerful sovereignty. So go to the Lord in your desperation. That's what the Israelites did right in verse 2. And secondly, what they also did right is they leaned on the prayers of others. They went to Samuel and said, Samuel, cry out to the Lord for me. The power of intercessory prayer, we see that on display in verse 9. And Samuel cried out to the Lord for Israel, and the Lord answered him. Do you have a Samuel in your life who you can go to and say, pray for me, brother. Pray for me, sister. I need the Lord's help. Would you intercede for me? We do that every Sunday here with our elder intercessory prayer. We pray for the needs of each other. You need that in your life. Thirdly, we have an intercessory prayer for us, and that's Jesus. He prays for us. He says so in in John chapter 17. He says, For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them, and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you have sent me. I am praying for them, Jesus says. He's talking about his people. He's talking about you. I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me. For they are yours. And Paul in Romans 8 confirms this by saying, Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died, and more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who is indeed interceding for us. If you've ever wondered, what is Jesus up to right now? He's praying for you, believer. He's praying for you. Isn't that comforting? Isn't that amazing? We have a God who prays for us. Well, we need the power of a new heart. We need the power of prayer, but we also need the power of remembering. Look at verses 10 through 12. And so as Samuel's praying, he's offering up the burnt offering. The Philistines come to attack. The Philistines drew near to attack, but the Lord thundered with a mighty sound that day against the Philistines and threw them into confusion and they were defeated before Israel. Do you see who wins the battle? The Lord does. He thunders with a great sound. They're in confusion and all the Israelites have to do is clean up. And they come in and strike them down, as we see in verse 11. And what does Samuel do in verse 12? Samuel took a stone and set it up between Mizpah and Shen and called its name Ebenezer. For he said, till now the Lord has helped us. So why an Ebenezer? Why the stone of help? <laughs> well, Del Ralph Davis says that as believers, we do, need to, we do need to stand in the present. We do need to live in the present, not uh, live in the past or, or live in the future, but we have, we have a job to do. But he says, we stand in the present, but dwell on the past in order to be steadfast in the future. There is an aspect as, for the believer to look upon the past. Think about what God has done in your life to help you in the future and in the present. But there is power in remembering. While we're to abide in God's grace in the present, we are enabled to do that by remembering God's past grace. So we need to get in the habit, if you don't have any Ebenezer's things you can point to in your life of God's grace, you need to get in the habit of looking for those and building them and One of the ways to do that is rehearsing your testimony of salvation for others to hear you and be reminded of God's goodness to you in the past. We have, um, in Matt Kirkham's small group, they've been sharing testimony. So each week, one person in the group will share their testimony with the rest of the group. I would encourage other groups to think about doing that one week or or a semester. It's a great way to remind yourself of what God has done for you, to write out your testimony, and then share that and encourage with one another how God has saved you. I was thinking, what are some Ebenezers in my life? And I think my children, to a degree, are, God's, uh, are Ebenezers. And I told Clara that this morning. She says, I'm not an Ebenezer. Don't call me that. But, but uh, they're walking, talking, even talk back at you, Ebenezers of God's goodness and His grace in my life. But I want to distinguish between authoritative. Ebenezer's and experiential, authoritative meaning directly from God, given to us from his word, Ebenezer's verses, passages, things that he's given us. Dale Ralph Davis says this, I proposed a change at our celebration of the Lord's Supper. Our communion table, like many others, bears the legend of Christ's words, this do in remembrance of me. I suggested that perhaps we should screw in two hooks into the bottom edge of the inscription and hang another appropriately carved dictum beneath it. The one I proposed was, hitherto hath the Lord helped us. It would be fully proper. Where is there a more decisive hitherto than when God did not spare his own son? That when we take the Lord's Supper, that is an Ebenezer. God has helped us to this point. He has been our help. But what are some passages, what are some verses that have, you've clung to as an Ebenezer? For me, it's two different verses in the psalm. Psalm 1611, you make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. It's a sweet verse for me. As I've, I've thought about the joy God gives us when we cling to him. He promises to give us his joy. In Psalm 73, verse 25 through 26, Whom have I in heaven but you? And there's nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. I love these verses. They're written for us to cling to. Dale Ralph Davis continues. He says, God has not given goodness and mercy all the way through Merely to desert and abandon me to this point. Up to this point, God has helped us. And up to this point, gives confidence for the future. Unknown until, an unknown and unlit as it is. We don't know the future. But when God says, I'm with you up to this point, and I've been with you in the past, what he's saying is, I'm going to be with you in the future as well. So establish reminders of God's help in your life. Where are they? Where can you look for them? Especially as life gets hard, as it surely will. Robinson, the the hymn writer that I mentioned uh, earlier, who wrote, Come Thou Fount, and I'll conclude with this, he had a rough end of his life. Things got really hard for him. And Bruce Heinmarsh writes about him, and he says, We should also remember with some sympathy that Robinson was late in life a broken man. By 1790, the year he died, he was physically and mentally ill. His sermons became incomprehensible, and some described him as insane. He never recovered from the death of his 17-year-old daughter, Julie, in 1787, and he faced a financial crisis that could have sent him to debtor's prison. And many of his friends had turned against him, thinking of his suffering at, a, at this distance. The final verse of his great hymn takes on more poignancy. And the final verse is this, which we'll sing shortly. O oh, that day when freed from sinning, I shall see thy lovely face. Full arrayed in blood-washed linen, how I'll sing thy sovereign grace. You see, he knew that we're going to continue as sinners in this life. And he wanted to be freed of that. He knew it. I shall see thy lovely face. And so as we cling to these reminders of God's grace and remember, we need to remember that God remembers us. That he holds on tight to us. And as Christians, when we were at our moment of deepest danger and despair, sinful and deserving of hell and eternal death, God remembered you. Look to the cross. It's the proof that you need that God has remembered you and given you all that you need. His timing, his priorities, and his purposes are all revealed in Christ's death and resurrection. He hasn't forgotten you. So we need to remember that. And so at this point in Israel's history, they had Samuel, but Samuel pointed to a greater Savior, didn't he? One who would not bring the sacrifice for God's people, but who would become the sacrifice for God's people. Samuel was to point to a greater mediator. And he he brought the burnt offering in verse 9. But in Hebrews 9, Jesus becomes the burnt offering. We read in Hebrews 9 verse 12 that Jesus entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. So it's through Jesus' death, His sacrifice, and His resurrection that we have the power of God to, to help us to live with Him this Christmas season as we're, as we're thinking about celebrating Jesus' re- first coming. We need to be reminded that God gives us new hearts. We need to rely and trust on Him for that. But He gives us prayer and He gives us His love. And He gives us the power of remembering and trusting in what He's already done to save us. Let's remember that as we continue. In Jesus' name. Let's pray together. Father, we're so grateful for the things You've given us. Those little reminders, those little tangible reminders of what You've done. And we all have different ones in our lives. But would You give us more? Would you open our eyes to see where they are, those Ebenezer's? That up until now, you have been our help. And you will continue to be our help as we look to you for strength and for grace. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.